Geek Top 5 Quarantine Edition. Yay! It was time now. There was was all the time I needed. Geek Top 5. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And we are back with another set of dueling lists, but this time we are not alone. Well, we started the Spooktober content, but, uh, you know, it was hard to stay away from comic books, and we dropped into that pretty heavy. We hit DC last time, but now it's time to get just a little bit more specific. Graham, why don't you talk about what we're doing here today? Well, our dear old friend Dave Ansel has returned, and he's brought a list of the best works of Mr. Alan Moore, arguably the godfather of comic books, the person who brought the medium into the the adult realm uh, for a lot of people, especially the superhero genre. And uh, so I I have also compiled a list of my top five Alan Moore works. Um, But enough about the genius of of the comic book industry. Let's talk about the genius guest we have with us today, Dave Ansel. Why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, Hello, everyone. Um, (laughs) My name's... David and uh, yeah, uh, just to say a little bit about Alan Moore, um, he yeah he is uh, basically what brought us kind of from the Bronze Age of comics into the modern age of comics and uh, allowing them to be uh, considered a little bit more uh, cerebral or intellectual. Uh, some may say pretentious. I remember when I was. Uh, younger, the first time I picked up my uh, copy of uh, Watchmen, I just couldn't get into it, and I didn't even finish it. And then it was later on um, that I decided to pick them up again when I was out of high school, less angsty, and able to appreciate them for uh, what they are and the concepts that he manages to bring to. A medium that uh, sometimes is in serious need of legitimization. I, I just I feel like less so these days, but certainly in the uh, in the eighties, and he, he uh, without a doubt helped legitimize the the medium and and legitimize superheroes in particular. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, until he started working on uh, graphic novels, uh, we never would have thought that we would see a graphic novel as uh, one of Time Magazine's 100 Best English Language Novels. Yeah, I don't know that people really took the term graphic novel seriously at all. Like, I don't remember that being a thing before, you know, before Watchmen and V for Vendetta and all those sort of Alan Moore high points. It was, I remember when I was growing up, Alan Moore was where you went when you needed to prove to like your mom and dad or like your English teacher that comic books were more than just like stupid brain dead smut. Yeah, I mean, I think there are other other uh, people who who deserve some credit in that uh, area as well, like Art Spiegel, or is it Art Spiegelman with uh, with Mouse and and people like that uh, did a lot to legitimize the the format, but not in a way that also was necessarily satisfying from a, a, an entertainment value. Mouse is definitely like literature, and you read it because it's an important thing to read. Whereas mm-hmm. Alan Moore's stuff better straddles that line. Right, but Alan Moore also writes about the comic book stuff that we're... Like, he writes about superheroes, you know? Like, yeah, of course Mouse is literature. Like, it's... 
like like that that's a that's a very deep and poignant holocaust story that just happens to be told with pictures right like alan moore wrote like superman and batman and like but he made them grown up i can't think of a better word than that well, and, I guess and, actually, probably David already used a better word. He legitimized, right? <laughs> so that's that's uh, I'm yeah I'm following up your steak with my my cheap hamburger for no reason. <laughs> I, I do think that that Watchmen and uh, Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns and some other stuff from that era, as impressive as they were, they kind of opened a Pandora's box where superheroes got darker and grittier without the counterbalance of like intelligence that, that these guys brought to it. And, and we ended up with an era of overly violent, overly graphic, graphic novels and, and reading, going back through some of Alan Moore's stuff for this, I definitely found material like recurring motifs and we'll get into it that I found troubling in, in his work. And like, I don't want to discredit everything he did. It's, there's a lot of fantastic stuff in there, but there's, there's some real dark things that he comes to again and again and again in his work. And, and reading it as an adult, it made more of an impact on me than it did when I read them when I was in high school. Well, I think that uh, to get into the details of that, we're probably going to have to go bit by bit. So maybe we should get to these lists. Let's, Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Let's start with your number five, Dave. Number five is Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Okay, that is going to be later on my list. Okay. So we will get to it. Uh, my number five is The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Ah, okay. That is not on my list. It just barely did not make it. Okay, so let me give a, a little background on it. It's probably best known for uh, Sir Sean Connery's performance as Alan Quartermain in the uh, less than faithful film adaptation and uh, you less know, than extraordinary yeah you <laughs> rest in peace but uh it's it's one of alan moore's last books that he did for dc under his own imprint called america's best comics and it's the only one that he actually owns out of those books that he did for them so he and, and artist kevin o'neill were able to continue making league of extraordinary gentlemen books even after they left uh dc for for other pastures uh so the the premise of the series is it's like a Justice League of literary characters from the turn of the century. So our, our heroes are uh, Mina Murray from the Dracula books, Alan Quartermain from, you know, Alan Quartermain books, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Captain Nemo from the Jules Verne books, and the Invisible Man. Uh, eventually there are other characters like Fu Manchu and... and uh, James Bond's ancestor Campion Bond and Mycroft Holmes are all mentioned and, and a bunch of other literary characters. When I first read this in high school, it, it was it got a ton of praise in like 1999 when it first came out. And so I read it to try and be literary and, and like seem <laughs> smart. But I didn't know anything about these characters. I didn't know anything about turn of the century literature. Frankly, I barely know anything about it now. But with the benefit of having Wikipedia and stuff right at my fingertips, I'm able to look some of these people up and get a better grasp on what he's trying to say with it. And and I really am enjoying it more or have been enjoying it more rereading it for this. And that that's why it ended up on the list because it's just so much... It's, it's so interesting and so, so well done. And there's a lot of depth just in who the characters that he chooses to use for it and, and the story he tells with them. And Kevin O'Neill's art is not 
anything you've ever seen before. It's it looks like old wood carving characters, and and it's it's very meticulous and beautiful and and so stylish. I love it. Now I've never read it before, um, and I haven't seen the movie, but I get the general idea. Uh, so when you say what Alan Moore is trying to say about these characters, based on my experience with Alan Moore, he's saying they're all secretly assholes and the time that they live in was terrible and everything sucks, right? I mean, you, you kind of summed it up. That That is... Yep, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of his gem. Uh, yeah, it's and, and look, none of them are secretly assholes. They're pretty uh, upfront about it. Uh, I think, you know, and and here's where it starts. There's a lot of sexual violence in this this, this story. Uh. And it is, it just, some of it, some of it, so much of it actually just feels unnecessary and uh, done purely for shock value. And we're going to come back to that again and again with his work. And, and as a 35-year-old man, I found it a lot more jarring than I did when I was 19 and, and reading it, or however old I was. It, it's it kind of unsettling how much he uses it. Like, in the first three issues, there's all sorts of stuff happening, and some of it is just offhanded and played for laughs. And in some of his other work, it's dealt with a bit more in-depth and or gracefully. But in this, it's just like, Oh, here's the plot point for this issue. This is this is the moment when something horrible is going to happen to a, a woman, or and sometimes a man, but mostly women. Mm-hmm. But besides but anyway, that, it was great. Good. And it's your number yeah. five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, specifically the first volume. I, I haven't read too much beyond it. I read the second volume a long time ago, but I haven't got a chance to go back to it. Then there was a thing called the Black Dossier. And he did, I think, three spinoffs of, uh, of Captain Nemo. And then a fourth, or a third and a fourth volume of the main series, and he keeps introducing new characters and things keep jumping ahead in time with with new groups of literary figures becoming new leagues. All right. Well, then I guess it's just a you know to pitch it back to you, David. So why didn't it make your list? Honestly, it was just because it was a very tight list. <laughs> He's that, got a lot of good work. That's all I can say. Yeah, these are some of my favorite comics of all time period are these like this five list so yeah okay so do i like do i do i come away from this thinking hey i should give this a shot as long as i can stomach all the sexual violence i i think so there's actually a a book i think it's by uh, jesse nevins and he he it's like an annotated league of extraordinary gentlemen where he goes through all the characters that are referenced, their literary background, the background of the people who created those characters. And I kind of want to get that just so I can have a better understanding of why these characters were chosen and, and what their origins are and how they all mesh together as well as they do. Hmm. Something to consider. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. One last thing I would uh, recommend. Uh, reading five other things before that one. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, That's fair. At least five others. I mean, I got four <laughs> ahead of it, too. In any case, Dave, what's your number four? Number four is Batman the Killing Joke. Okay, that didn't make my list. <gasps> <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So you do um, your pitch, and then I'll explain it. <laughs> okay, so Batman the Killing Joke. Um... 
as a brief synopsis, um, basically, uh, it starts off with uh, Batman interviewing the Joker, uh, or at least who he thinks he wants, he, who he thinks is the Joker. Uh, and it turns out that the Joker has actually escaped. Then the Joker buys an amusement park um, and at one point stops by uh, Jim Gordon's. Is it Jim Gordon's house or is it? Um, our, no, actually, it's it's uh, Barbara's because she thinks it's it's her friend from across the hall. Right. Yeah. So uh, he sto- the Joker stops over at Barbara's apartment and just shoots her right in the stomach through the spine and um, then uh, proceeds to do Alan Moore things. <laughs> Delicately phrased. <laughs> yep. Um, and then from there, uh, he takes he captures Jim Gordon, takes him to his uh, amusement park, and uh, basically kind of tortures him and, uh, psychologically... Uh, and eventually Batman catches up with them and um, we'll get to the ending later. Okay. But one other thing to mention is that interspersed throughout this story uh, is a possible Joker origin story that it flashes back to. And it's actually, it, it creates a very interesting narrative between all of these events and actually I, I really enjoy the backstory because it it's framed in a way that makes him a little bit more reasonable and relatable in that he's a struggling comedian and um, he's trying to make money for his wife and an impending child and so he ends up getting um involved in a rough crowd uh some gangsters and they put him on a job uh which then goes south um at a chemical plant and then that's basically where he gets um disfigured and uh becomes the joker um but it's a very kind of moving story about a man who's just trying to get by and then gets pushed in all of the wrong directions and then off of a cliff. I don't I don't know. I didn't find it moving. It, it that kind of, he he makes a lot of bad choices. It's he oh. he tries to sell it off like, "Oh, woe is me. Anyone could have a bad day." But he keeps putting himself in these terrible positions and and I don't have a lot of sympathy for him. It's true a lot of it is self-inflicted um yeah i i didn't i didn't mind it i like i i didn't suddenly you know feel uh empathy for the joker but um but yeah it was just it was an interesting take to see the joker as kind of a a more uh, regular person and then that transition into who he was I don't know if it was the first uh, glimpse we'd had at a possible origin story for the Joker. Well, in doing research for this, it it turns out that uh, Moore took the basic framework of that origin story from an issue from the 1950s where the Red Hood, very similar things happened with the Red Hood being revealed to be 
the Joker and, and that being his origin story. So oh. I, I didn't know that, but it was it's sort of cool having him show a respect for the comic book history that came before him and using that as a starting point and, and fleshing it out a lot. Like, I don't want to take credit away from him, but yeah. there it's a cool fleshing out of it. And I also love that he gives this line to the Joker where he says, that, uh, if I'm going to have an origin story, I want it to something like I want it to be multiple choice. And that's such a great way to be like, this is an, uh, this is what happened. Or maybe not, you know, this if you want this to be the Joker's origin, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> yeah, it's a little meta, but it works. It's you know, I like I liked it in that it was the implication that maybe the Joker doesn't even know himself. Right. Uh, you know, maybe yeah. that's one way he sort of remembers it, but he also knows he's crazy. So who knows how much of it was true? But yeah, on another on the meta level, it's like this is an origin story. <laughs> Um, so the reason why I put this on my list um, and put it at number four um, was that uh, it was very well written in how it was done. Um, I also enjoyed that there were it displayed some lasting repercussions um, with violence in comics because a lot of times um, the answer to a lot of the superheroes problems is violence they just get into a tussle with the villain and eventually they they win or overpower them or outsmart them or whatever um but then they just kind of go their separate ways um heal their wounds and everything is fine but with this one it just it had that lasting implication but but the only on Barbara, like like there's no lasting consequences for Batman, Joker, or Commissioner Gordon, only on on Batgirl. Yeah, which was very interesting because uh, there is some ambiguity on the ending whether he's supposed to ha- Batman is supposed to have killed the Joker. Um, yes, or this drove me crazy. Whether whether um, yeah whether he just he waits for the police to arrive and does it by the book like he said he was going to um i mean you know the killing joke ends with a joke so maybe it also ends with killing it could this yeah i i I, that was my takeaway when i read it was that it was the final because the whole thing is about how the joker's trying to prove like what happened like what happened to him could happen to anyone right like you had a bad day and he went crazy Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of parallels between like him and Batman, like saying like they're both crazy, just in different ways. But it doesn't happen to to Gordon. Like he's still okay at the end. But they use that to show that okay, well, Batman is not okay. So was it too much for Batman? Did he kill the Joker? And I I guess it's mm-hmm. an Alan Moore thing, like where he deliberately doesn't give you the answer. You have to figure it out. But yeah. when I read that, I was like, yeah, that's what happened. Like I didn't realize it was controversy. It doesn't happen on panel on camera i don't know what the doesn't have it on the, the page but i just sort of saw that's naturally where it went but apparently this is a, a thing that people like debate in bars it's <laughs> been a while since i've read up on, on that aspect of it but i i seem to remember that grant morrison came out and said definitively that that's what that was what alan moore was trying to say and i think alan moore took exception to that and said that's not what he was going for and <laughs> that's where a lot of the controversy comes from um yeah, well yeah uh, i i think that um he he wouldn't want 
to definitively say anything, usually his MO has been to uh, cause the reader to think for themselves. So I don't know if he was opposed to the fact of uh, that Batman had done that, or well, if it was just that he he didn't I, want to to ruin it. I guess I, I I will say my takeaway from it. I, I it never even occurred to me until reading that Graham Morrison thing that that Batman killed the Joker there, and maybe it's from knowing too much of the the rest of the, what was going on in comics. But by the time I read it. Batgirl had been in a wheelchair for 20 years, so the idea of of uh, there being a consequence to that action and having that play out for the rest of, of well, for 20 to 30 years, now she's she's she miraculously recovered from her spinal injury. Comic books, everyone, but uh, the fact that she is still around and still paralyzed and Joker was still alive meant that Batman couldn't have killed Joker. Ooh, relying yeah. on logical progression and <laughs> canonicity for comic book explanation. That's those are rough waters you're sailing, my friend. No, yeah. I disagree. Once it's said, once it's <laughs> the, that, unless it gets retconned later that you know he was revived in the Lazarus Pit or something, this is what the comic books are telling us. In one issue, he's he, it's not even ambiguous. He's still uh, okay. Is maybe a little ambiguous at the end whether Batman's killed him or not. In the next issue, he's alive. That means Batman didn't kill him. And yet now there are three Jokers, so... Yeah, that's after, what, three or four uh, complete universe-changing events. It's There's a million things. Uh, yeah, it's we're, we could go in circles. That's that's a whole different podcast, I think. Yeah. I, um, before we get further on this, I have to say that we, we cannot talk about this book without talking about Brian Boland's art. Like, if I were doing a top oh. five Brian Boland comics, this would be up there, because my... God, it's gorgeous. It really is, and I will admit uh, that I actually only read the deluxe version, where it has been recolored to what he originally imagined for it. Yeah, um, apparently he did the recoloring too, so it, it's truly his vision on yeah. the art from beginning to end. Um, just because they were limited back then. Um, but he did. He made a point to keep Barbara Gordon's uh, classic yellow uh, shirt. I guess that was something that changed in the original. Like, I know they had um, something like the original. They got a, a different colorist at the last minute or something. But yeah, so, side by sided them or anything. You should. Yeah. It's it's dramatically different. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so what happened with the yellow was that um, she had this bright yellow blouse. And the only reason why it was this uh, really kind of almost gaudy yellow was because they were just had a limited color palette and it was just what he could throw down. So well, for the deluxe edition, he kept it, but he made it look a little bit better. It's. It, I was reading that it was the colorist from Watchmen who did it, and, and knowing that and looking at the original pages, you can see a lot of the same color choices. It's done in a more... I don't know, fevered way, a less realistic way, but the same bright oranges and yellows and purples that are in Watchmen were in this. And it it's yeah. looking side by side, the Brian Bolin uh, colors are so much more appropriate and so much they, they tell the story so much better and, and more cleanly. And I think so so I when I first read the book, I was again, this is a long time ago that I first read it. So I was reading it with those original colors and I 
they I think that may have diminished it in my mind. Reading it now with the proper coloring really improved it. But I have to say, I don't love Alan Moore's Batman. I, I'm more of a fan of the sort of like quiet, all-knowing, super genius Batman, for better or worse. I know there's there's detractors for that, but the Batman in this is a lot more human and fallible, and I don't like that Batman that much. So that that is an uh, impediment for my enjoyment of it. And that's why it didn't hit your list? Yeah. But man, you, you've got to do a side-by-side comparison of the art. It's truly genre. All right, all right, all right. I will, I will. <laughs> yes. Hopefully someone's done it already and I can just Google it up. That's what I did. Uh, just Google image search. Okay, will do. So my number four is Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow? Okay. okay so take, you guys are close. Yeah. Take the lead yep. on that, Dave. Uh, okay, so this is the final Superman story before the Crisis on Infinite Earths event and the subsequent reboot reboot of the uh, Superman series. Um, so it takes place over two issues, um, Superman number 423 and Action Comics number 583. And uh, because at that time they were doing the Superman, they were doing the Action Comics, he was in Justice League, he was just everywhere. Uh, so they we're wrapping up his story, I think, uh, to reboot Superman and uh, possibly the action comics as well. Um, and it takes place in a supposedly imaginary pocket universe. There's kind of a caveat at the beginning saying that, um, you know, this may or may not have happened. Um, it's not necessarily an alternate universe, but it's just kind of like, uh, you know, this story is completely made up. But then again, Aren't they all? Great line. In uh, okay, mm-hmm. all right. There's a thing going back to the Silver Age where it was like they would do these one-off stories called the these imaginary stories. So this was called an imaginary story, but aren't they all? Yep. Um, so I, I and I think they, you know, it's it's probably a good way to do it to wrap this up because it gives uh, more more agency to allow readers uh, freedom to disregard the end uh, if they're not particularly satisfied with it. Um, But uh, so what happens in the comics is that Superman, uh, all of his enemies are suddenly going berserk and um, they're just uh, gunning for Superman. Um, And nobody really knows why. Um, or at least why now and so they uh, start going after all of uh, the people that he cares about in his life and then uh, they eventually get to the uh, Fortress of Solitude uh, so that Superman can uh, protect them uh, and then uh so all of his enemies show up and uh, one of them being kryptonite man so superman was kind of useless in this fight for once um and uh it basically just brings together all of uh, these these really kind of old and obscure and just and some long running 
uh, villains and all of the characters that had been uh, added to the series uh, over time and uh, brought them all together in this massive clash at the Fortress of Solitude. It's definitely got an air of like the you know the, the end of Act Three, right? Everything's been leading up to this. Yeah, um, and it's all being framed in the form of an interview with uh, Lois Lane. It's like it's like the distant future, the year nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, and so she so she's telling the story of what happened and uh, what she remembers from uh, about the events. And so, uh, in the end, um, we get a lot of uh, really crazy things happening. Uh, like, Jimmy Olsen, Lana Lang, and Crypto all die. Um, Lana and Jimmy, after donning uh, the superhero powers, like, they, they regain superhero powers that they had at various points in the Silver Age. Yeah. And... Um, Superman finally uh, makes a decision and he says, um, you know, it's Lois Lane because he'd always kind of kept uh, Lana on the hook. Oh, so they wrap up the love triangle, you're saying? Yeah. And yeah. so definitively he said it's it's always Lois. Yeah. In the, I feel like in the modern age, the Lana story is definitely uh, a Superboy thing that kind of disappears by the time he gets to Metropolis. Whereas in the Silver Age, I don't know as much about that that era of Superman, but based on what happens in these comics, it really it, it looks like Lana is like co-anchor with him on this news program, and and so the love triangle was was really still hot and heavy in by the in the middle of the eighties. It'd be going for like forty years at that point. <laughs> yeah. So this finally uh, wrapped that up. Um. Oh, and Crypto dies in the most tragic way possible. He sacrifices himself um, biting Kryptonite Man through the neck. And Oof. he dies from the radiation poisoning. That's so Alan Moore. It, oh, it, is, <laughs> it is very Alan Moore. It is very dark and grim. And so I think that's one of the really interesting things about this. Because I think he's trying to show the the last days of the silver age and, and like wrap up the silver age here yeah but he uses a lot of the excesses and maybe inspires a lot of the excesses that that characterize the following age the bronze age and the going into the modern age where there's the villains are that much more villainous there's no like cutesy tricksters anymore and if they are they're killed off pretty quickly by another villain to to show how bad that villain is it's an every the evil of every villain is ramped up to the the nth degree and that this comic does that it's like you you're watching the bronze age happen before your eyes in this send-off of the silver age superman well speaking of cutesy tricksters Um, one of one of the things that I, I actually I really give Alan Moore a lot of credit for is his ability to find obscure characters that have been thrown in at some point and then reimagine them, uh, usually in, in a very dark and ominous way. Um, but he invokes... Uh, uh, you're going to have to um, forgive me on this pronunciation, but Mr... Mixes Pitok? Mixel Pitalik. Mixel Pitalik. 
That's uh, the second episode in a row we haven't been able to pronounce that one. <laughs> um, who is uh, basically effectively a god um, from the fifth dimension. He's kind of like the uh, the DC version of Loki. Or, or Q. Or Q as well. Hmm. Uh, and... So he can normally um, only be stopped by tricking him into uh, saying or spelling his name backward, which is a very just cutesy, Silver Age kind of uh, gimmick. But in this, uh, Alan Moore kind of, he explores the space where, with the problem with immortality, that the character that they'd created is apparently just immortal omniscient omnipotent like omnipresent he's just like pretty much a straight up literal god and he can do whatever he wants and so uh at at the end when he's revealed to be the villain um he he says that uh you know for the first like two thousand years of his existence he just did nothing he just saw what that was like and then for another two thousand years he decided to be um, like a trickster and just play pranks on people and see what that was like. And then now, for the next 2,000 years, he's going to see what being evil is like. And well, okay. And so uh, and, and, then he, and then he cheekily says um, and maybe for the next 2,000 years, I, I'll feel guilty. I thoroughly enjoy this concept that he brought forward because I love it when you kind of you take characters and you just kind of go what if that person actually decided to you know be evil yeah. rather than just playing tricks on people what if he actually decided to really uh impact or hurt people i mean it, it's a neat idea and it's handled well in this issue but i feel like it's been done to the detriment of so many characters over the years like like because this was the end of the Silver Age and, and an imaginary story, they were able to bring back Mixie and his his impish form and keep using him in the Silver Age or in the modern age without him being a terrifying, evil, malevolent god, which would be kind of boring. It's more interesting to me to see him as this imp and, and playing cutesy little tricks because once he's a god he's unstoppable and it's 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 not interesting i i want to see superman have to be clever and get through a, a something instead of trying to fist fight a god i would agree with you if this was going to continue in a series right but just for the one off um like that's that's where i like it that's where i like that kind of um what if scenarios yeah, there's a lot of there is a lot to like in this, and, and again, I, I want to keep going back to the artists. This is uh, so Alan Moore, the king of the Bronze Age and, and the the Holy Spirit of every age since, where every modern writer or most of them seems to love and worship Alan Moore. They're they're following in his footsteps almost slavishly. Uh, he writes this story, and but the artist on it is Kurt Swan who was the definitive Superman artist for like two decades at that point. And on top of that, on the first issue, George Perez, who is one of the all-time greats, inks him. So it's like two of the best artists of their generations, two different generations, doing the art on this story. And it's it's gorgeous. It's very 
Silver Age, but like heightened and and, and taken to a whole new level. So good. And, and then Kurt Schaffenberg does the inking on the second issue, but still, Swan and Perez, what a team. And the fact that they're drawing you know, what is presented as sort of the end of the Superman story. Yeah. Like sort of the same way you get all the all-star characters in in that you also get sort of the all-star creators to to put them together. That's that's pretty cool. And uh, the thing that occurred to me while I was reading this is it is full of deep cut Silver Age Superman references. There's talk about uh, Superman's uh, or Krypton's god Rao, and there's there's all sorts of stuff in the background that are different items from Superman's past and Jimmy becoming the elongated lad or whatever <laughs> and Lana getting superpowers and, and redonning her superhero identity. There's just so many things and it's hilarious to me to think of this dark brooding writer, this bearded wizard in, in England right, reading all of these goofy Silver Age Superman comics <laughs> just combing through them like like holy books looking for references to hide in this this story it's a great to me it's a wonderful image and i think it humanizes alan a little bit and it's probably worth noting that in a rarity he does give superman and lois kind of a happy ending in this one right like spoiler alert and all that jazz but like it's he doesn't brutally kill everyone and blow up the planet (laughs) which is kind of rare for his writing. So there's, there's a, a, especially in the Silver Age, there's a million different types of kryptonite. There's the green kryptonite is a kryptonite we're all familiar with that, that slowly saps Superman of his power. But there's also red kryptonite, which does crazy things to him, different things every time he uses it. And uh, in this, there's gold kryptonite, which permanently takes away Superman's power. So he, in a, his Fortress of Solitude, of course, he's got a, a, a room where he's got a piece of gold kryptonite and he locks himself in there and uh, then then disappears into the Arctic wilds and, and he's, is presumed dead. But at the end of the issue, it's, it's you know, implied that, that he's just taken on a, a human identity and is fixing cars. I mean, it's sure. more than yeah, implied. Yeah. Like, yeah. I... I, I I think I remember him actually winking at the, the audience. <laughs> yes, he literally winks at the audience. But yeah, I, I, is it? I don't. Is is it a little ambiguous as to whether he still has powers or not? I don't think so. In his new identity, like when we see him with older Lois, he's supposed to be older. Too, yeah, right. Am I right about yeah, that? He's got great. Hair. So he's aging. Well, so you know, it's Superman. He can dye his hair. He can do whatever. He can use his. Uh, hair graying superpower you know and especially in the silver age every other issue he had a new power mm. but the other is thing is their son jonathan uh crushes a piece of coal into diamonds so you know the stories of superman aren't over at all and the, the thing that I, I enjoyed about this is when they did the new 52 reboot towards the end of that short run of a couple of years it was revealed that the Superman and Lois from the pre-New 52 had survived and were just living a normal life with their son, Jonathan, also the name of the son in this, in, in like the suburbs of some small town USA. And I, I love to think of it as like a little nod to this story. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so I think we're on to Dave for his number three. My number three is Watchmen. That's your number three? <laughs> oh, boy. We're not going to be talking about that for a little bit. 
Okay. <laughs> well, All right, Graham with your three. number three is another Superman story. It's called For the Man Who Has Everything. Oh, yes. Uh, that is not on my list. It's... But, th- yeah. <laughs> it's uh, from an annual, and, and for those who don't know, annuals are... are bigger issues that come out once a year. So this was Superman annual number 11. Uh, it's a, the a pre watchman pairing of Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, which is uh, cool to see. Uh, it's Superman's birthday and Batman, Robin and wonder woman are going up to the fortress of solitude to bring him his presents and wish him a happy birthday. And they get there and they find that he has this flower embedded on his chest and they can't figure out how to get it off. Meanwhile, Superman is having this vision or, or this life of where he's still on Krypton and he's like, you know, a middle manager at a bank or something, just living a completely mundane, normal person life. And it's he, he then we cut back to the, the Fortress of Solitude and the person who did this to him it reveals himself. It's Mongol, this uh, this tyrant for this intergalactic tyrant who hates Superman. And this flower shows the the wearer their their heart's desire and it's like they they would never want to take this off because it, it gives them the world that they wish they had so it's sort of weird I, it, they don't really explain it but i i it's weird that superman's in his heart of hearts the the life that he wants is just this like boring suburban existence where his his dad was proven wrong about the destruction of krypton and is estranged from the family and is flirting with this uh fascist cult that's growing on krypton it's a it's a bit of a weird dream life for him to have meanwhile batman robin and wonder woman are trying to hold off Mongol and free Superman and Robin of all characters ends up being the, the savior. He's the one who figures it out and then attaches the black mercy, the flower that, that uh, Mongol had brought onto Mongol and thus freeing everyone. And, and one of the iconic images from this, which again, I think has been overdone and, and taken to a place of extremes since then. But it's a cool panel in this where Superman is freed. It realizes that all his dream life was just that a dream. And he hates Mongol for doing this to him, for giving this to him. And he's in Mongol's grasp and he, his eyes glow red with heat vision. And he says, burn. And then he shoots his heat vision into Mongol's chest and blows him away. And since then, Superman being angry and having his eyes glow red with heat vision has become such a boring trope of the character and and one that I feel is it is it goes against what the character should stand for that I, I hate it but but seeing it in this with the first time it was done in a, a moment of the most extreme evils that could have happened to him at this point it's really it, it's it, it's feels justified and now it's been done so much that it never feels justified it feels like he's gonna do it if he's shortchanged <laughs> right but that's but, but that's not this story's no it fault. isn't but it's just like people yeah. taking these cool things that alan moore does and not innovating their own thing just reusing them to to say the same thing anyway i really like the story otherwise it's, it's very well told and and is it's a nice contained one-off that has a lot to say but also is is contained as that one thing you don't need to go beyond it and dave why is it why didn't it hit your list um i i liked it um i think i just may not have read enough superman comics for 
the alternate universe that he finds him in to really strike me as much. Uh, like, I understand he's generally fairly docile, but then, uh, you know, to show him glowing eyes and anger is, uh, was probably very sobering to see for the first time, but yeah, I just, I, I don't, I just don't think I, I was into Superman all that much. All right, it requires more familiarity for that to have an impact. Yeah. Also, just one last thing worth noting that Batman briefly gets the Black Mercy on him, and so you see uh, Batman, you don't really see the world that he was in very much, but he says that, you know, he his parents weren't killed, and he married uh, Kathy Kane and had a teenage daughter and and so he, he, you get a bit of a taste of what his dream life would be and to me that one makes a lot more sense than you know middle management Superman <laughs> <laughs> but what what's, uh, what's your number two Dave uh, my number two is V for Vendetta I have never read it all the way through I've Good read heavens. bits of it so this take that i mean he's that's the thing with this list it's hard to do there's a lot of alan moore i haven't read just because he's written so much and, and especially his more recent stuff is hard to find because he won't work with any of the big companies <laughs> okay well yeah no hit us v for vendetta i mean i've read this one. i like the movie yeah um i th- yeah i think we're gonna have to just go with a, a basic overview of what's going on with uh some of these later ones because they are um full series really yeah, yeah, you can't go over the entire plot. <laughs> but, uh. um, but yeah, so V for Vendetta is set in a uh, near-future, um, post-apocalyptic, dystopian uh, setting in England, uh, where a uh, fascist regime has taken power and um, executed any uh, socialists or effectively any opposition um, in uh, internment camps. And so the the setting starts with a character called Evie, who is a young woman, um, and uh, she runs into trouble. She is saved by a, a mysterious figure uh, who refers to himself as V. And uh, later uh, that night, he blows up the the Old Bailey, um, which is like the highest court. And, uh, and then that sets forth the, uh, the motion of uh, the character of V systematically eliminating the leaders of the fascist government. Uh, while uh, taking the character of Evie uh, kind of under his wing and along for this journey with him. Now, and then it's, I mean, we, you should also note, like, as much as V is a is a freedom fighter, it's also to find out more about his background. Like, all the leaders of this government were, like, coincidentally involved in, like, experimenting on people in this prison camp. And we like, and we find out that like he was one of the one of the people there, and maybe there's some like not superhuman, but maybe metahuman stuff going on there. It's all played very vaguely. And isn't uh, isn't the comic book more about uh, like promoting anarchy, whereas the the movie is more about democracy? Um, 
it's it's less about promoting anarchy um, and more uh, showing the two sides in um, the stark contrast of their dichotomy. Like you can, you're. It doesn't tell you what's wrong, or like it. It tell. Sorry, like the book tells you what's wrong, but not what's right. So the, so the fascist government obviously will be portrayed as bad, but likewise, V is systematically murdering people in his quest or in his vendetta against them uh, for their actions in Lark Hill and all of the subsequent actions they've done. So he's not necessarily supposed to come off as a good guy in his intentions or that it's promoting that level of anarchy it's i think uh more supposed to be i, I just want to say alan Moore bullshit <laughs> like it's everything's dark and gloomy and there's no heroism to it really like yeah. the, the movie definitely like I, i've been read it described that it americanizes the concept <laughs> like or it, the movie is definitely like freedom versus oppression yeah, no, it doesn't... yeah, the, yeah, the, the, yeah, the movie definitely uh, goes at at it from a different angle. Uh, this one, yeah, is basically supposed to show you the two extremes and illustrate more or less why they're both wrong and how the truth kind of lies somewhere in the middle. Okay. Well, I don't know if you've sold me on reading it, but uh, <laughs> it's it's well, definitely a deep work, and and I know it took years and years from beginning to end, and, and multiple publishers for it to be to finally be finished off. Yeah, it was originally published in Warrior, and it really was not well received at all. Uh, but I think that a big part of that is due to the fact that they're publishing this continuous story. Like that's very, very um, meticulous in how it's set up, and it's published in brief chapters, like among several other titles in e- in each issue. That would make it harder to digest. So it carried on with Warrior uh, for about uh, twenty six issues, and then uh, ended its run. Uh, which is baffling to go back and think on where it would have ended because uh, in the books, as they were republished by DC, it would be uh, chapter 12. And that's right when Evie walks into the Shadow Gallery and V says, welcome home. Mm. And she realizes that uh, her incarceration and uh, torture was perpetrated by V all along and then that's just where the series ends I mean it's a good cliffhanger like it's a fun reveal it's a very good cliffhanger but it's also um, a little unsatisfying so three years later um, DC it's uh, Vertigo line picked up the comic and finished it Um, published the unpublished uh, ones to finish off the second act and then uh, continued with the the third act, uh, the land of do as you please. And that's interesting because like uh, the Vertigo line at DC, a, a place for more mature comics that didn't have to fit into the superhero genre was 
basically created because of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing and his protege Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics. So he he created the his the own uh, a place in order to finish V for Vendetta. It's kind of like he, he <laughs> without his own work, he wouldn't have been able to get a chance to finish this other work. Yeah. He went to go make his own comic yeah. book company, Blackjack. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay, but Graham, and you never, never got more interested in reading it. No, I think it's it, it may have been it's been a long time since I tried to read it, but at the time it may have been too British and too artsy for me. <laughs> England prevails. <laughs> Not um, on me. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, yeah, uh, like I, I think I read it at uh, pr- probably the perfect time um, when I got into the uh, grim dark genre. <laughs> so uh, yeah, like I loved, um, I I especially loved Evie's incarceration was my favorite thing. Um, well, that sounds pleasant. That whole the whole scene of being broken down to the point of that like death can't be held over you anymore. It was just very like personally uh, relatable, so it was like it 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 resonated. And uh, personification, like his personification of government branches, um, into uh, like the uh, the leader of the country is referred to as the head. Um, the video surveillance or the eye. Um, and that just like like just was like you liked the grimness of it like I, I liked that it it kind of it gave um in a better it, it was a metaphorical uh comparison to uh a government as controlling our senses mm, and that each 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 yeah. one acts as a mechanism of control over what basically forms uh, a single entity. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> and <laughs> so I, I just I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um I I I loved that they had hacking in it. Um there's the fate computer which the head uses uh in order to predict the future. Um because it was the eighties and that's what the future of computing was. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like it, you know, a lot of this actually speaks to the eighties. Like when at the end, when uh, Finch takes LSD to get into the mindset of a prisoner at Lark Hill, it just it just reminds you that this was written in the eighties. Yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> and wasn't there the whole thing like we find out that V's been hacking the 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 computer, the Fate computer, yes. and it's like it's and the person's falling in love with yeah. it. Like there's a whole. They don't touch on that. The, the '80s had a weird, a weird, scary. Like, like they didn't know what to make of computers. Thinking, <laughs> do we now? Do we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now we know. Bad. Well, pretty much. <laughs> we just call it machine learning now. <laughs> Very good thing to have on your resume, by the way. Oh, I'm gonna need yeah. a plant in order um, to machine learn. Yeah, uh, but it, yeah, it is interesting that uh, he hacked the computer, which could be described as a commentary on our reliance on systems for intelligence and the danger of manipulation of those systems. Especially to the point where you treat it like a lover. (laughs) 
So let, let's let's not gloss over that. That's weird. <laughs> oh yes, yes. No uh, like well, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't look like a sexy robot lady or anything either. Like it's it's a computer. Uh, so uh, yeah, one of the other things that I, I love about this book is that um, all of the leaders of the various parts of the government all have uh, fairly believable vices um, that are used against them. Um, but considering all of the political scandals and everything, like I just, I read the comic and I'm like, I'm not surprised. Well, at <laughs> this point, when I, when I look at, at old political stuff and there are these scandals that bring people down based on what's going on in the real world, I'm like, why? Like, like it, all you have to be is like, yeah. And and no one seems to care. Nothing happens. It's like I, it, it's made all of this stuff unrealistic. Like someone getting caught in a scandal doesn't seem to have any consequences in the real world. <laughs> so Dave is looking at V for Vendetta as grim and dank, and Graham's looking at it like yeah. golden age. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> Back where politicians with you know extramarital affairs or drug habits were a huge sin, and being exposed led to the downfall of their society. <laughs> Okay, uh, we're we're circling a bit. Maybe we should yeah. uh, maybe we should move on. Yeah, but my number two couldn't be more different. Uh, so so at the same time as he was doing League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, he started. It, this was all part of his America's Best Comics line, and uh, in that he also had Promethea, which I was reading for this, and and it was good, but didn't make the cut. Tom Strong, I couldn't find an easily accessible copy of, but I really want to read Tom Strong at some point, but. This other title by by Moore in the late '90s, I loved it then, and I've loved it every time I've reread it. It's uh, we we don't have to go on it too long, but it's called Top Ten. You ever read it, Dave? I have never heard of this, Dave. I've I've never heard of that either. <laughs> oh, okay, it's fantastic, and it's it's like you know, it, it is to to League of Extraordinary as League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is to Victorian era literary characters, this is to superheroes. It's a police procedural comic that takes place in a world where not only do the cops have superpowers, everyone has superpowers. And it's like, how do you function as a police? Like, how do you, how do you enforce laws in a world where everyone has superpowers? And it's not like everyone just has the same rote superpowers. Everyone has completely different powers. And it's it's done with such a light touch. It's it's cop stuff, so there's murder and, and and violence, but it's also in a superhero world, so it's it's lighter than than most any other Alan Moore book you'll you'll read. And there's great characters, which isn't I, I don't think it's it's necessarily one of Moore's strong suits and other stuff like his plotting and the emotion is always great. But in this, every character is really well-defined, and they're also really fun, and they have fun interactions with each other. So some of the characters are uh, Officer Dust Devil, who's a techno-cowboy. He's, he's like, he's an old cowboy, except he's got steampunk guns and a mechanical horse. Their dispatcher is is from a world with, with Roman gods, so she's her nickname is Janice, because she's got two faces, like the god Oh, Janus. oh, like Janus. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. And then uh, the one of the higher ups in the the uh, in the precinct, the, which is the the top ten precinct, is Kemlo, who's a super intelligent dog in a robot body. 
but he's like a casual guy. Like he's got a robot body where he's got long arms and legs and he stands on all fours and walks around, but he wears like a Hawaiian shirt over top of him that's unbuttoned and he's got sunglasses. This is Alan Moore? Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> it's Alan Moore paired with artist Gene Hahn, Xander Cannon. It's it's a lot of fun and there's there's amazing little Easter eggs on every page. One of the best is uh, they keep going to one of the officer's mother's apartment and there's super powered mice dressed like the Avengers who are fighting a cat dressed like Galactus and it's it's just in the background like it's never it's not really addressed very much it's just something that's happening while other things are going on and if you're not looking for it you're not necessarily going to catch it it's great and and apparently I'm the only one who even knows about it so so we should all go out and buy it and read it and talk about it in another episode <laughs> Okay, I mean it's it's that's a hell of a pitch. It sounds a little not what I would think that he would be doing. I yeah, and and it's <laughs> unlike some of his other stuff or most of his other stuff, you don't necessarily come away from it with like a sense of melancholy or dread or sadness. You just come away from it being like, "Wow, that was a good time." All okay, right. Fair yeah. enough. You might have sold me on that. Nice. All right, what is your number 1? Number one is Saga of the Swamp Thing. Yeah, that's that's not my number one. <laughs> <laughs> what is your number one? Well, let's well hold on. let's let's. I mean, let's, we got to talk about Swamp Thing first, and especially for poor Jesse here, <laughs> who this is not the first time on this podcast people have talked about Swamp Thing with adoration and love, and I I don't understand. I'm not saying I disagree. I'm saying I literally don't understand. What is so cool about Swamp Thing? <laughs> okay, so let's get into the history of this. Um, thank you for coming to my TED Talk on Saga of the Swamp Thing. Okay, I'll settle in. Um, <laughs> so there were uh, 19 issues uh, that were published before Alan Moore came on, and uh, it was not doing very well. It was a very kind of just a uh, plain, uh, uh, just run-of-the-mill horror comic um, featuring some featuring some characters that uh, lived in Louisiana by a swamp, and uh, so it was struggling a little bit. They decided to bring on Alan Moore to revive it a bit, and so in I believe it's uh, number twenty was the first one that he did, which was kind of a write-off. It was more just a tying up of loose ends. Um, I mean, it was actually... Sorry, it was actually called Loose Ends. <laughs> Published in January 1984. Um, but the the first real issue uh, that he published was in February of 1984 called The Anatomy Lesson. And this is where we really get into redefining um this character into something that is uh just intensely uh memorable and uh very just uh constantly thought-provoking as i was flipping back through it i was like oh yeah this and this and this so uh what the anatomy lesson gets into is um the swamp thing was originally uh, a man named Alec Holland. Uh, and there was a... 
he was working for a government agency. He was uh, doing uh, experiments out in the swamp. Uh, there was a bomb planted there. He It explodes, and he gets blown into the swamp. And he effectively gets blown apart into the swamp. And the swamp coalesces around him, basically reabsorbs all of his molecules into itself and then creates the swamp thing out of it. Okay. The <laughs> So it creates this monster that has sort of a humanoid form that can vaguely remember some of the memories of being Alec Holland, um, but is not really him. He's just plants. And so it, it the idea so it's it's the various adventures, and it's still a horror setting. So there's still basically um, like monsters and werewolves and other swamp things and whatever that are um, beleaguing the these people in this um, Louisiana town, and the swamp thing is basically protecting those people. So um, you'll have these. Uh, moments where you have the swamp thing, you'll have these moments where you're following uh, these characters uh, through their lives and everything that happens. And eventually, uh, he romances uh, one of the people. Um, in, a, a beautiful woman, and he is literally yes. a swamp thing. <laughs> yes. And that's what I love about... That's one of the many things that I love about this is that it's a love story. There's monsters, zombies, demons, and love. You know, it. at one point, his wife, Abby, actually gets incarcerated for indecency. And in fact, actually, it's Batman who points out the legitimacy of Abby's relationship with the Swamp Thing. In that... Um, Super, there are plenty of relationships with aliens throughout the DC universe, such as Superman, Martian Manhunter, Starfire, Hawkman. Like, yeah. they've all had relationships with humans, and they are not human. You know, Martian Manhunter is just a weird shape shifting goo or whatever that chooses to be in humanoid form. In a more humanoid form, yeah, more human-like. He I, he could definitely choose to actually just look like a human. I don't know why he goes around halfway between human and Martian, but, you know, good for him. Let him yeah. fly his flag. But effectively, it was a really interesting um, storyline. And at the end of it, 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 it was just, they just wanted to leave well alone, was the moral of the story, I guess. Um, that they were causing this uh, fuss. And in fact, actually, she was taken to Gotham. And that's where the Swamp Thing basically overruns Gotham with plants um, and then turns into a big tree golem and stomps down and uh, fights Batman, is one of the very few characters that they ever allowed to defeat Batman. And then at the end, he was just like, just leave me alone. We just want to go back to the swamp and be in peace. And Batman is like, fine, go, but never come back to my city or I'll kill you. <laughs> and th the swamp thing just, you know, gives him kind of a, a, a wry, you know, yes, I think you will. 
Now, so for me, Swamp Thing has never appealed because I'm not interested in swamps and I'm not interested in things. So it really eliminates the whole, <laughs> the whole concept. <laughs> but specifically, yeah. it's it's a little too, as weird as, as it is to be talking about something called Swamp Thing, it's too highbrow for me. Like the entire <laughs> premise of it is about like the nature of personhood and and what is thought and what is... <laughs> what is the individual and it's like i don't care <laughs> i just but that's the best part that's literally why it is my number one is because he took a generic monster comic and it turned it into a discourse on existentialism that's fair i'm not interested in most monster comics <laughs> either I, no, I know he's it's, it's my like, fault but i just cannot get into it like i find it completely unrelatable you go on this journey of Swamp Thing trying to disseminate whether he is Swamp Thing that remembers being Alec Holland, or he's Alec Holland as the Swamp Thing, kind of like Peter Parker as Spider-Man. And yeah, just going through that journey, that existential dichotomy where he's like in this quantum superposition of being both plant monster and man. And I mean, like, it's just... Like, if you were to transplant your consciousness or mind or whatever, like, into a dog, but you still remember being a person and all of your experiences and everything you've done, but you're in a dog body now, like, does that mean you're, n like, no longer Graham or, like, mostly I, I will never find out, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, I just, I, I, I love this so much and but it, it the biggest uh milestone i think for me is just that he he took a, a struggling character and just uh built it into something so much more that it probably never should have been but was just a, a wonderful read so that's going back to what you were saying earlier about him taking sort of obscure characters and doing something different and cool with them i guess that's yeah. kind of an mo thing I don't know. From what you describe, I'm kind of curious to see now. But uh, that, that's that's fair. <laughs> Hearing this this sort of approach to it is is a, I just it's not what you expect from the title Swamp Thing. But I guess that's the point. Mm -hmm. All right. So so I, I'm sure it will come as no surprise based on how we've talked. And I I'm kind <laughs> of surprised it wasn't your number one. But my number one is the seminal Watchmen. It's it's the comic that that is considered the be-all end-all of superhero comics some people think like superhero comics as a whole could have ended when this series ended because there was nothing left to be said uh it's it's been made into a movie it's been sequelized as a tv series there are adaptations and and versions of it that are and and sequel comics that have been done for for a lot recently there were a few decades where it wasn't it was considered untouchable but now regimes change and it's suddenly touchable but it's it's uh, a story of of kind of what would happen if superheroes really existed and the dark reality of them and um the consequences of having hyper intelligent hyper powered people in in a real society and the, the dangers of them and it's also like hit like the number one like oh have, well have you read Watchmen like it's it's sort of like a gatekeeping thing like that's how you know somebody's serious about comics yeah yeah it is and and it's it's important reading like I, I've I've 
done, uh, I've taken a, a super or a comic book course uh, and taken classes in, in college, literature classes, both have had this in it. And, and if you did a superhero course beyond like a purely comic book course, this would be in it as well. Like it, it's, it's important reading and it can be dissected on so many different levels and, and every image in it is meticulous and, and, and thought out to, to every level. Like there's, there's a whole issue that is done as a mirror. Like the first panel is mirrored in the last panel and it, you keep going through it. And it's just crazy to think of. And, and it, everything that came after that book has its fingerprints on it. Like the, it changed superhero comics evermore. So it's when you're talking about Alan Moore, you gotta have that at least in your top five, which I'm glad it was for Dave, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, I would not be upset if it was number two. Okay, well, it is. It's number one because it's got to be. I, I and I've read it a few times, and and every time I do, there's more in there. And and just like I, I'm probably just not smart enough to fully appreciate uh, Swamp Thing. I know I'm not smart enough to fully appreciate Watchmen because I've read stuff about it, and I'm like, oh my god, I had no idea. There's just like so many layers to it, and there's so much going on with it that it's hard to appreciate without combing through it with a fine tooth comb well let's zoom in then i mean like we all know it's good and we all know it's special we all know it's important but so i mean i guess like david maybe that's on to you but so i feel like it's the natural number one on this list but why do you have it buried a little lower um yeah so like i said i mean i wouldn't mind if it was number two uh both of those kind of hold a special place in my heart, but I just think, um, yeah, V for Vendetta was uh, a little bit more uh, my speed, and also um, I just I loved how meticulous just everything was. I mean, not to say that Watchmen uh, wasn't, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It was it was a tough list to make because I actually I really do uh, love all of these um, comics. I just remember having a hard time with it uh, when I first picked it up because it was the first time that I'd picked up effectively a, a comic book uh, and it was just a wall of text with some pictures. Right, okay. And um, and like, and like, th this is before I had even seen Neil Gaiman. Yeah. Ah. So... <laughs> It's it does it's it, it is a book that uh, the more you read it and the the I think the older you get the more you can appreciate it like yeah I, the first few times I read it I was like I do not care about this pirate stuff let's just get back to the action yeah. there's a whole there's a whole uh, continuing plotline of this kid reading this pirate comic book this is in a world where there's there's superheroes superhero comic books aren't that interesting and so pirate comic books became the number one seller in this world and there's this kid reading this pirate comic and as you're I, I don't know. I found when I was older and, and could better grasp the narrative, I could see the parallels in what the kid was reading in this pirate story and what was happening in the, the main story and how they fed off of each other. And it's just like yeah. so well done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But yeah, like I, I absolutely love all of those things that were packed in there now. I can definitely appreciate it coming back to it. And yeah, like I, I, I can talk a lot about... Uh, um, a bunch of the themes that I like, but if I if I was to just end my nitpicking, it's very difficult to write a character 
that can see through time. I mean, how, because, can, how can you find that harder to accept than than Swamp Thing being able to, like, commune with plants? It's not the fact that he can see through time. It's that he doesn't have the ability to... Uh, he, he can see himself as he exists and experiences things at all points in his time. So he should effectively be able to see past the events and then know that the events would have happened because i understand that uh the explanation is uh you know to, to bring uh, star trek next generation back where uh tachyons disrupting <laughs> right, his ability yeah, to yeah, remember that the future um but that would have but that would have been isolated around his fortress or let's say it wasn't but at some point he probably would have destroyed that uh, the fortress of uh, Ozymandias and and then he would be able to see the future again and then at some point he'd have a discussion being like hey do you remember that time that guy murdered half of New York and he's like yes I do remember that well you're also I mean I, I would also argue that he seems to be content with how fate plays these things out and, and there are times where he knows what's going to happen but he still reacts with surprise in his in the moment and so maybe he just is, is talking about the not being able to see the future because he knows he can't change it and they, they, this is how he's supposed to act yeah you know what yeah that's a, that's actually that's a fair point yes um, i did it yeah. i did it alan you're, you're redeemed <laughs> because <laughs> i i i really like uh yeah how he plays up the indifference of godlike entities to our like trivial things there is actually a part in the book where the comedian um he shoots a a woman in vietnam who he got pregnant and um and then he berates uh, Dr. Manhattan for not stepping in when he could have. Which, uh, okay, let me just say one thing about this that uh, I find hilarious hearing you describe that, because I was reading something about the, the killing joke, where he said later on, years after it was produced, he saw the criticism about what happened to Barbara Gordon, and he's like, yeah, uh, I, you know what, in retrospect it was probably too far. Someone should have reined me in where were my editors? They should have stopped me. And it's like such an abdication of any responsibility. And it's just like this thing with the comedian. Like, why, why'd you let me do this horrible thing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, it, it was great. And I, I, I really do. Uh, I, I love all of the characters and I think that they are written um, very well. I love the, um, like the people in costumes aspect of kind of, what these people would probably more likely be like you, if you were to have real superheroes it would probably be more like night owl than batman but as much as you love it you kind of like v in the swamp thing more i i had to put saga of the swamp thing first because i love it that much it is just i i loved reading it and I will read it again, and it was just fantastic. I will say that uh, book six it is is not um, quite as good as the other ones. I would end with my blue heaven, 
because uh, after that, Swamp Thing goes out and explores space, and um, the only way I can describe it is that it, the writing just goes full Alan Moore. Yeah. Like, if you think there's a level of uh, pretension to his writing, this is cranked to 11. Uh, I do feel that, so... <laughs> <laughs> So that's where I kind of cap it off, is that in my collected works that I have, I ended at book five. Oh, and I also love Effective Villains. Um, Effective Villains is one of my favorite uh, things to see in any form of writing, where um, in this, Ozymandias does the typical, lays out his entire plans uh, for the uh, for w- for what he's been scheming this entire time over the course of the book, um, and uh, you know normally they have the arrogance to say, "Oh, would I really explain it uh, if I thought you had any way that you could possibly stop me?" But then the heroes find a way to possibly stop him. <laughs> Whereas in Moore's version. He did it 35 minutes yeah, ago. That right? was that was an incredible line. Okay. And well, <laughs> I, we are are like we are have done time and uh, and more. So maybe we should uh wrap it up. Yeah. I guess we should. So Watchmen and Swamp Thing at the top, but uh, it sounds like <laughs> we all agree across the board that a lot of this stuff I, is sort of worth reading for sure. Oh. It, yeah, if you were going to read some graphic novels, Alan Moore is a great place to start. It's a great place to finish. If just a, <laughs> a little bit depressing now and then. <laughs> but hey, Dave, that was awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's good to have you back. Thank you for having me. And uh, hey, also, of course, thanks go out uh, to the, our musician-in-chief, Jamie Reum, guy behind our theme song, R-E-A-U-M-E. Check him out, Jamie Reum Official and Jamie underscore Reum. And don't forget about his online uh, trivia, pub night project, triviashmivia.com. And thanks, of course, also to you, the audience, uh, for, you know, we do this for you, and because you're interested, we get to keep doing it. Um, is like is is there a crime being perpetrated here? Is there something we missed? Yeah, do you just can't stand the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or can't believe we didn't have V rated higher? Uh, we know you like to send those really long messages explaining where we messed up. So hey, you know what? We're happy to hear them. Graham, how can they get a hold of us? You can email us at geektop5 at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash geektop5. And we're on Twitter at geektop5. All that and more. Plenty of good reading recommendations for you to keep you busy until we have something new for you. Till then, I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this has been Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again next week.